Hello, beginning session four. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Help us to honor you and serve you and be filled with your presence. And uh, hallowed be thy name in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've got Adam and Eve in the garden, and we're going to have, of course, some things going on with that. Um, but that could just be a nice little ancient fairy tale. So, uh, we need to talk first about the fact that uh, some authors like uh, Lovejoy said in The Great Chain of Being that if anything is added to eternity, that proves right off the bat that it's false because eternal eternity would have to be an eternal set of stasis or nothing changing. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, if you have Almighty God in eternity, uh, just because we don't understand how something happens doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So uh, we cannot apply uh, simple human logic to a task that is bigger than straight, simple human logic. Humans do not understand. Uh, they do not get it. So God has to um, show us what he's up to. So we're going to talk about how we know. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Well, how do you know? Peter says, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye be able, after that my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Now remember that um, John and Peter and Paul, Timothy, Barnabas, Luke, John Mark, Matthew, Philip, of course, and Bartholomew, and but, but these writing apostles all had seen Jesus, Paul after his resurrection. Uh, they had all seen him in action. They all chose to write things down so that history would know what happened. God has never left his people without a witness. And there's always been a written witness. That's why I told you it's inexorable. God spoke. Now, watch this. Peter says, after I'm gone, after I'm dead, I want you to be able to remember things. 2 Peter 1, 15, 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Uh, the ancient world is full of fables. Uh, Nimrod and Semiramis told people that the world was started by an egg floating on the water and that out of that egg came the Titans and they were the Titans. The Titans were the gods. And if you've ever watched Greek mythology, there's been Clash of the Titans where the Titans are fighting with Zeus and Apollo and all those guys and uh, eventually Zeus slash Jupiter and his people went against the Titans. Uh, the truth is, yes, there was an egg floating on the water. It was Noah's Ark. It was full of two of everything except seven of every animal that was used for sacrifice. And um, <clears throat> out of it came Noah 
and his children. And we'll get to that later and we'll specify what happened with all of that. And that's a very interesting study. So we're not following cunningly devised fables. We're not following uh, things where we have a mistletoe because the mistletoe, Loki used the mistletoe to kill Tamas um, or the Norse version of Tamas. And right now, I honestly don't remember his name, but it's all the same thing. It's the mother child reincarnation system. And it's a whole system and you can study it in Hislop's Two Babylons. It's a great read and you should do it. But we didn't have cunningly devised fables. We declared to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, there are some that claim that Christ didn't claim to be God, especially in Matthew. Well, that's interesting because Matthew is about presenting Christ as the king. You have Matthew uh, early on teaching us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Oops, thy kingdom come. The Father's kingdom. And then later on, uh, as you get up to the chapters, chapters 21, 22, 3, when he's come back to the kingdom and they have put the palm leaves down in, or palm fronds down in front of his uh, donkey that he's riding on. And... Uh, they say, Hosanna, which means do it now. Be the king. We want you. Strange. By Friday, once he tells them what that entails, they said, well, second thought, let's just kill him. But um, Christ, in that week, or in leading up to that week, says, when I return, when the Son of Man returns, anybody that knows anything knows when he says the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. When I return, I will come with my holy angels to my kingdom. And we know from later studies in John that, uh, and in Revelation, that Jesus Christ, in Colossians, tells us that Jesus Christ will judge the earth because Jesus Christ created the earth with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ, after the cross, every, all authority has been handed to him. What he says is in Matthew 28, all authority is mine. Now I'm telling you to go out and make disciples. So um, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter was there when John the Baptist baptized Christ. He heard this. John heard this. All the hangers-on, the people that weren't disciples but followed along, they all heard it. And this is the voice which came from heaven, and we heard it. And we were with him in the holy mountain of transfiguration. We saw him with Moses and, uh, and Elijah and we know that when God said to him, yeah, yeah, these are great old prophets, but no, you listen to my son. My son is God. Not some Greek half-human, half-God thing like Phaeton or one of those things where he gets a chair, he gets Apollo's Corvette chariot and he's, but he can't really control him and he's flying around and he burns half the earth and that's how we got 
deserts? No. He is God, the creator God, the inexorable link between Old and New Testament creation and inspiration. And he, <clears throat> we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed. You're making a huge mistake when you don't heed the word of prophecy that God gives. As unto a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the day star arise in your hearts. God said he's going to write his law in our hearts. We're going to know how to follow him. And if you don't think that this world is dark. You know, I went to Bible college not even sure I believed in God because of the way some Christians had acted. And after, and I studied everything. I studied Hinduism and Buddhism and all of them. I read all their books. I read Hitler's books. I read Marx. I read Francis Schaeffer and Lewis Perry Schaeffer and Dwight Moody and Oliver B. Green and everybody else I could get my hands on. Constantly reading. And the light shined in the darkness. I said one day, you know what? There is evil in this world. Anybody that doubts that is just not observing. They're not being empirical. They're not being careful in their observations. They're not getting it. There is evil. And evil is of its own source. Something is driving the evil. It's not just you make me upset. No. And then I thought, well, if there's evil... There has to be good. Where does that come from? Well, I've seen good in my life. And this is where it becomes very important that Christ lives in us. I saw good in Burton Thomas Preston Sr. I saw good in Burton Thomas Preston Jr. and his wife Trudy and uncles and other people. But I saw good in Maddie Jane Preston in a way that was hard to explain. Does that mean she was greater than Burton and Burton? No. But they were different. Her tender kindness was so deep and so real. Now, I remember one day, I, I think I said a curse word in front of her. I was, oh, I don't know, 11. And she looked at me and said, oh, Russ, and those two words did more than making me eat a bar of soap or spanking me or any of that stuff. You see, her goodness was so real. My father's tender kindness, and he was a rough man. He fought at Iwo Jima. But his tender kindness over and over and over proved to everybody he knew there is a God. It is Jesus Christ, and he is kind and faithful and good. Knowing this first, verse 20, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Right there's the silver rule of interpretation. You can't pull some words out of somebody's whatever and then go off and say you're a New Testament historian and blah, 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 blah. You can't do that. Nobody can do that. Paul got in an argument with Peter because Peter was withdrawing to the Jewish faction and claiming things about, you know, 
the the Christian life. Uh, he was letting things go on that shouldn't go on. And Paul said to him, to his face, he said, hey, wait a minute. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles, in other words, uh, we're not worried about the Levitical law, uh, the dietary laws, all those, all the specific Levitical uh, ceremonial laws. We're not worried about those anymore. Christ has already done away with those. Didn't change the moral law. Moral law was here before it ever got here, and it'll be here when it leaves. The moral law has never changed. It will never change. It is God's nature. But the Levitical law, the ceremonial law, the Old Testament ceremonies and provisions have been changed. We're in the age of grace, and we'll talk about that. That has to do with dispensations and covenants. But um, they're not of any private interpretation. You can't just create your own idea anytime you want. No. No one scripture is true by itself. You have to interpret in the light of all the scriptures. All of them. Particularly the ones that directly talk about that, but there are ones that don't directly talk about a subject that still impinge on what you're talking about. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. These are not things that men decided. Socrates had a great mind. Plato had a great mind. Those people, you can study them and learn a lot. Plato's parable of the cave is phenomenal. They had insights into spiritual things, but they didn't know Jehovah. They came not, didn't come by the will of man, but holy men of God, men who God had chosen and formed into his image and cleansed them enough to make them into vessels he could use. They spoke, there we are again, Bara, the Abnustas, they spoke as they were moved by God's Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Either way you want to say that. They, uh, they were moved by the Hagios Pneumatos. Hagios is, is holiness, it's sanctification, it's all those words. Pneumatos, of course, is the power, the wind. The, the Chicago pneumatics power of God. And they wrote because God told them to write. It wasn't an option. He told them to write. He told them what to write. It wasn't, if you feel like writing a letter today, no. Paul, write this letter. And Isaiah in chapter 28 Verse 9 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? You want knowledge. You want to know how to teach knowledge correctly. Those that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Say it simply. You never saw a Pop Warner kid, unless they're crazy. But you don't see a Pop Warner kid leave the football field and climb up in the bleachers and Say, Mom, where's my milk bottle? Sit there on the bleachers for 10, 15 minutes, suck it on the milk bottle, and then jump back down on the field and play. You're not going to see somebody from the, the Atlanta Braves or the Mets or somewhere, or the, you know, the, the Yankees, whoever, the Rays. You're not going to see these guys climb up in the bleachers 
and say, Mama, where's my milk bottle? Grown men are past needing milk during an activity. Yeah, I love to get a few couple Oreos and a glass of milk, sure. After all the activity's over at night when I'm tired and worn out, yeah. But I don't go in in the porch and yell into Marsha when I'm using a bow saw and cutting logs or whatever and say, hey, bring me some milk. No. That's for children. Children need it. Men don't. Um, for precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. When the Bible in the Old Testament repeats like that, it's emphasizing. The Hebrew language is like that. Uh, if you look at the book of Proverbs, these are couplets. And you will have a positive couplet and a negative. Positive statement, negative. Or you'll have positive, positive. Once in a while, you'll have negative, negative. When Jesus said, barely, barely, was he stammering? No. When you do that in the Greek or the Aramaic in the New Testament, you are saying, truly, I'm telling you absolutely without one variableness, one shadow, not one doubt, not one possible variation. Truly, I'm telling you. Absolutely, I'm telling you. And then he would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. And then he would say something. You better pay attention when he does that. He is being very forceful. God has given us the Bible. Uh, I love to grow Mr. Lincoln roses. And what is so much fun, and I get carried away. The other week I got carried away. I cut one too soon. Well, I thought I'd ruined it. It wasn't going to have any... Uh, it has unbelievable fragrance. And it was just struggling to open. It was in the house. And I thought, ah, you knew better. You should have left it on the on the bush a little longer. Well... It unfolded, and if you know how flowers unfold, the petals start to swell and they start to spread out. And when it got spread out, that unbelievable fragrance was there. And um, the Bible is like that. It starts off with some facts, and then it begins to build line upon line, precept upon precept. Until by the time you get to the Gospels and the Epistles, you're constantly referring back to the Old Testament. They're not sitting there by themselves. And that's how I know a lot of the things that are said about the Bible are not true. Because the people saying them have obviously not done their homework. And and it's sad. It, it's, it used to make me mad. It does some not now. It makes me mad occasionally. But it's sadder than it is angry. It is just pitiful to see how Satan is able to pull the wool over people's eyes. And um, he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet you would not hear. And that's, if you don't listen to God's line-to-line, precept-to-precept, uh, explaining to you what he's up to, then you're going to have a real problem because God's going to be doing things and you're going to be left in the dark. And there's nothing worse than being left in the dark when God's doing something. So how do we know? First, 
God's holy men wrote it. God told them. It wasn't just that I decided to make me a Marvel comic today and, and turn it into the Bible. No. That's not how it happened. Um, and the next thing is, when you're trying to determine something, in all of history, science and law is set by witnesses. That's why the Ten Commandments say you don't bear false witness. You don't lie. I was reading something not long ago where evolutionists say, well, lying is more evolved because you're going to survive. Well, Christians know that surviving is not the only thing that's important because we have a spiritual being and it must be nurtured correctly. Lying is not more evolved. Lying is lying and it's evil. It's always evil. And, uh, witnesses are how you make something legal. You go to court. Officer, did he do this? Yep. Little old lady that he ran over, did he do this? Yeah, you see my legs turned around backwards and in, in splints and casts and yeah, he ran over me. Uh, Mrs. Pr Mrs. Preston, my wife, did he run over the little old lady on purpose? Yeah, he's a good for nothing rat and he ran over on purpose. I said, but, but your honor, these people are mad at me and they're just lying about me. And then in the courtroom, 200 people stand up and say, this is the meanest, good-for-nothing rat you ever met, Your Honor. No, they're not lying about me. Well, those 200 people probably are going to get me convicted. Scientific truth, legal truth, is on witnesses. So, in Exodus 3, when God tells Moses, I am that I am, An angel of the Lord is in a burning bush. And Moses is walking around the desert. And having been in the desert a few weeks, <laughs> 40 years, he goes, you know what? I've seen a lot of burning bushes, but I never saw one just sit there and burn. And the leaves don't curl and the stems and stalks don't burn. And it doesn't fall down and turn into ash. This is strange. And he gets there and out of the bush comes a verse that says, a voice that says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And then he begins to talk to him. And he begins to say things to him <coughs> about how he's going to serve God. Now that, Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the presence of God, follows him from Exodus 3 to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, Joshua takes over. Now, if you go to Africa, there's a place where there's a ridge in the Red Sea. And if you go out on that ridge with scuba deer and stuff, you will find that there are chariots all along that ridge with coral growing all over them. That is probably, and it's it makes sense if you go at it archaeologically, that um, that's probably where they crossed the Red Sea. Now here's the thing. By the time they left Egypt, there were some 2.5 to 4.5 million Jews. When 4.5 million people see the water stand up and the and the ground is dry. Now, I've spent a lot of time in my life swimming. I grew up near Chesapeake Bay, and I've been in all kinds of swamps and 
and by uh, not bayous, but uh, inlets and waterways. And and uh, I'm gonna tell you something right now. When the tide goes out, the water might be low, but that stuff doesn't dry immediately, even if it's sand. Sand faster than other things. Three, four, five million people saw and experienced. They did the New Testament Gnosko. They learned by experience. They walked through on dry ground with Egyptians chasing them. And here we go with the Egyptian chariots. If they crossed at that point, which more and more Bible scholars think that is where they crossed. That's why there's chariots there. Because when they got out of that water, Pharaoh being thinking, I'm God. And when people tell you that the Jews had a system of thinking that men could be God and gods could be men, no, not with any faithful Jew. Pharaoh thought he was God because of that uh, false system of mother, child, God. We're descended from the gods that came out of the egg on the water of the ark. No. He thought he was a god, but God had been showing him for 10 plagues that he wasn't a god. And so he still thinks he's a god. And finally, God says, okay. He gets in the middle of the water. He tells Moses, hey, people are through. Put your rod down. And the water collapses on the Pharaoh and his army, and they are dead. Now, three to five million people witnessed and experienced that. This is not a, uh, a mass hallucination. This is a historical fact. It's a legal, scientific fact. The fact that you may not understand it, okay. The fact that you may not see all the evidence yet, fine. I don't care. It happened. Joshua does the same thing. They're getting ready to go into the promised land 40 years later. And the... It's the flood season. If you know anything about the Jordan River at flood season, it's a very dangerous, powerful river. And Joshua, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant, the, the priest's feet step into the water, it stands up just like it did in Exodus to prove to the people that Joshua is the new leader. They get on the other side. They put up the 12 stones as a memorial. And then they go on and fight Jericho and do the things they're going to do. Um, in Isaiah 6, 1 through 10, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Well, now, wait a minute. Who is this Lord high and lifted up? What's he looking at? He's in the temple, and he is um, considering God, thinking about the, the scriptures, and then we have him having a vision. And in this vision, in this revelation to him, uh, when Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. Now, the word there is not Jehovah, because you didn't see Jehovah and live. In fact, they didn't even say his name. We don't even know how to say Jehovah, because they didn't say it. They were afraid to. So what they did in the in the uh, when the Septuagint and the Greeks and the scholars of people were speaking Greek, didn't know how to speak Hebrew, so they were putting diacritical marks in the Hebrew so the people could speak Hebrew. Now, what they did was they took the consonants, because we know that 
Hebrew did not have vowels written. So that's what the priest did. All those diacritical marks, jots and tittles, were uh, to put the vowel sounds to where they could know how to say their own language. Because after the captivities, a lot of them didn't. And um, Jeremiah is in the temple. And the word here is Adonai, not Jehovah. I saw the Adonai sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And the seraphim were with him, and they had six wings, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So when Jesus says, when I come in my kingdom with my holy angels, he's the Lord of hosts. That is just like in John when he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the eternal name of God from Exodus 3. Every Jew in the place knew that he was claiming to be the transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, one and only God of the universe. And it wasn't a continuum. No, there's God and then there's us. And we're nowhere near him. So when he said, I shall come with my holy angels, he's referring back to the Lord's Prayer, and he's referring to Isaiah 6, the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Read Revelation. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe me, I'm undone. Boy, am I trouble. And, uh, for I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And uh, then the angel takes a coal from off the offer, lays it on his lips, and it doesn't burn him. It's a symbol of burning out the evil in his lips, because he said, hey, I live in a people of nasty speech, and I'm just as bad as they are. He said, nope, I'm going to take away your bad speech. And he said, who will go for us? Wait a minute. What do you mean, who will go for us? Well, it's the Trinity. And he said, here am I, Lord, send me. And as we know, that Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets. Daniel, in chapter 9, um, is praying fervently for 21 days. And after a while, Gabriel shows up and says, Hey, I was trying to get here, uh, but, but the demon that runs this section of the world is so powerful that I need a little help. Michael had to come help me. Now, why does God let these things happen? Boy, does that sound like a fairy tale. Well, I don't know, but I know this. Why does God let me exist? It's kind of strange now. I still feel like I'm 21 times sometimes until I try to play football. In my mind, I still feel 20. I'm 66. That means that Marsha and I have taught young people for 45 years. Why did God let me be the one to teach them? There's no more broken clay pot in the world than me. And yet I loved God with all my heart. And God somehow loved me and Marsha enough for us to help a lot of kids. And if I won't tell you their names and I won't tell you the situations, but if I could have them here sitting with me right now, they would say, yeah, yeah. When things got tough, I went to Russ and Marsha's house. 
And uh, not because we were perfect, but because they knew we loved them. And we were going to do our best to tell them what God would tell them if he were in our place. And we would turn to the scriptures because we didn't. <laughs> I don't I, I don't want to speak without the scriptures. So we know the Bible is God's word because we have millions of witnesses, eyewitnesses. Millions walked on the dry land with Moses. And 500 saw Jesus go up into uh, the clouds after his resurrection. And, you know, <laughs> I was reading something the other day. A guy tried to say, well, we don't know that Arimathea put him in the grave. Yes, we do. Because John said he did. You see, if I've got to listen and uh, if I got to listen to some guy, I don't care if he has a doctorate. The three most idiots I ever met in my life had doctor's degrees. A, doc a doctor's degree is like a hammer. I've seen guys with a 20-ounce hammer and they're young and they're out there doing carpentry and bending nails all over the place. And if you didn't watch them, they'd hit you with that hammer because they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, I have been not there when it happened, but I have been there right after it happened. I did electrical work in the Norfolk shipyards uh, when I was in college. And I have come upon situations not long after they happened where somebody made a mistake with 600 volts, 2300 volts, uh, 600 amp. And they didn't live. And one of the saddest funerals I've ever been to was a young, loving husband who got involved in a power line, tried to save the life of another guy, and it killed him too. Um, I don't know why God uses us, but I know this. There's a reason why there are angels and preachers, good preachers, and husbands and wives and prophets and people that write the word of God. I won't know all the reasons until I get to heaven. And when God tells me, it's going to be like, why did I even ask him? Of course, that is so obvious. Yeah. But we're on this side, as Paul said, looking through a glass darkly. Why doesn't God tell us any, everything? Well, we don't need to know everything. We, need, we know what we need to know. I know there's evil and there's good. And I am called upon by Jesus Christ to do good and to try to lead others to do good. That's all you can do. So the key is the holy men who love truth because they loved God wrote. And in Eden, Adam and Eve saw God daily. And so in session 4A, we're going to consider what it is to see God daily. Dear Lord, help us to honor and serve you today. In Jesus' name, amen.